I love God's word. Do you love God's word? It's good. But there are, there are lots of bits of, of God's word that I haven't read. Um, well, I have read. I read them back in Sunday school or, or back in the day uh, when my parents were giving me um, kind of bedtime stories. And as we got to teenagers, they used to start reading from judges, all the really kind of bloody wars and, and the kind of you know, people being killed with jawbones and stuff. But, but since then, I've not really gone back to them. In church, we're quite safe. We tend to kind of stick with, with letters and, and things that, that are quite easy. Uh, but then we had lamentations, didn't we? We had lamentations, and that was a bit of a shock. Um, and quite a lot of people have said after lamentations, well, how did the people get to the point where they were lamenting? You know, what had happened to this, this nation, these, these, these people that had been promised so much and seemed to have lost so much? You know, what had happened? Why, why were they having to lament about being taken to exile? I thought God had said they were going to you know, be blessed and, and live forever. And we're going to start a, a new series in a, a kind of, a, in, I guess, as a response to, to those kind of questions and feedback we had uh, to try and just briefly over about six or seven sessions, just try and give you a, a, a picture, an overview that the story of, of kind of God's people um, after Joshua's led them into the promised land. We're going to talk about what went, what went wrong. Uh, we're going to talk about what went right. Uh, but hopefully at the end of this session, these series, you'll be able to kind of maybe to have a bit of a better grasp um, of, of what happened. And I guess if I was to introduce it, some of the questions people have said is, um, have you ever wondered why God's people lost their promised land? Uh, have you ever wondered that? No? Okay. Do you, do you want to know the bigger story of the Old Testament? No. We could be on for a loser here. Uh, do you know how one people became two kingdoms and how those two kingdoms were conquered by foreign powers? You don't want to know. It's okay, we can talk about Jesus, we'll be fine. No, come on! This is uh, good stuff. Um, and, and I was reading this through as I, I sat nervously waiting to preach. And I thought to myself, there is a problem with posing those three questions. If you do say no, you may not come for six weeks. But, but, do come. Because uh, I've been really challenged as I've prepared. I'm going to do the first three. Uh, not that that's a big draw, but um, it just means we can kind of get the bigger picture. Romanian trains are, are really scary. They're really scary. Um, it was my favourite thing on holiday, changing trains. And there was one time especially where um, it was really, really scary because Steve and Ander came round and said, Paddy, we're going to get off at this next station and we've only got 30 seconds to do it. We need to get the entire group of kind of 40 people off the train. 30 seconds. They won't wait. They will literally drive off. We lined up with our baggage, and um, as we're lining up, this lady, Christina, who is going to be our kind of Romanian guide of this station, she'd been there before, said, oh, by the way, at this next station, you don't get off onto the platform, don't get off onto the platform, you actually need to jump down in between trains. Because if you jump onto the platform, by the time that this train has left, you'll have missed the train we're trying to catch, which is over there. And this is exciting, I was like, yeah, this is, this is mission. This is, this is a possibility of losing one of my, my youth groups. It's going to be awesome. I can go back and say, well, God was good most of the time. But uh, there was this one moment where, no. Um, so anyway, so we pull into the station and it's dark and there's noisy. And we jump down about five foot. People are literally being thrown off the train, just getting down. So we, we stop and there's an empty track and then our train. Okay, empty track and then our train. I yell up to Natalie Manzi, who's at the front, and don't listen to Alan and Troy. I say, Natalie, 
just get going, get going. We haven't got long. We need to catch this train. So very obediently, because I've brainwashed her over a number of years, um, she started to make a move. When I looked forward, though, I could see some lights in the distance. And I was thinking, oh, that's nice. They've got some, like, torches to light our way. And these lights are getting bigger and bigger. And I heard this, and I was like, that's a train. That train's coming on the empty track that Natalie's about to step onto. And I said, Natalie, stop! And Christina went, run up, run up! Because she was speaking of Romanian. But Natalie stopped. And sure enough, this train came flying through. About, and I'm not lying, about a foot from us. Okay. At this point, like normal people, we started to back away from the speeding train towards our train. Do you remember how long the train was in the station for? 30 seconds. That train starts to move. We are literally stood like this. And I am praying as hard as I've ever prayed before. But Christina had led us through. The minute that fast train went by, we crossed the train, crossed the track, jumped into our new train and we were fine. Christina, our guide, had led us to the right path. Safely, (laughs) effectively, in a way that was not a risk to your children. But you see, choosing who to follow, choosing who to follow is really, really, really important, isn't it? In, in life, choosing who is going to be your king, who you're going to live for, who you're going to follow, is really important. If we just as a group just blindly followed each other, we could have literally stood in front of a moving train and got some wicked photographs. But we didn't, and we were safe. Tonight's passage looks at a key moment, a key moment in the life of, of Israel, uh, of the kingdom, that, was, that were God's people. A moment where they, they decided to choose who they were going to follow. Okay, and we're going to, we're going to talk about that. Choosing who you're going to follow is really, really important. In our case, in Romania, it kept us alive. For God's people, we're going to see how it, it led them down a path where eventually they were taken into exile. Because I think this is a key point. This is a point where they, they give up having God as king and they pick someone else. Just before we get into it, I know you're really excited, I can tell, uh, by, by this excitement. I need to give you some background um, of, of what we're going to look at, just so you don't think we're just jumping in. So, do you remember, and I've done this quite a lot from the front, um, and I'm going to slow down at this point and do it calmly and smoothly. So, God had chosen Abraham, this amazing, this amazing uh, man of faith. And he'd made some amazing promises, not just promises, a covenant, a strong promise with Abraham telling him that that he would be blessed, that his descendants would be blessed, that out of him would come a nation that would bless others. Do you remember that kind of of moment from Sunday school? An amazing promise. God doing it just out of the goodness of who he is. His plan to to bring about Jesus at the end of time started here with Abraham, right at the very beginning. Before then, Adam and Eve, the minute they'd sinned, God had had this plan from the very beginning of time. Even before then, Jesus is there creating the world with God. This amazing plan. Do you remember Joseph, though, settled in Egypt? Life was good. He had the coat, became kind of prime minister. Do you remember that story? And he, and he saved his family when there was a famine. This sequence that seemed disastrous, sin of brothers, selling their brother into slavery. Even through that, God brings about kind of a, a saviour figure in Joseph. Do you remember that kind of bit? But there's a problem because after a while, all the Israelites become slaves in Egypt. You kind of know that bit as well. And they're stuck. And then Moses is, is raised up. This boy that was saved from a, 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 just a, an atrocity where babies are killed. God saves him, raises him in the palace. He has a position, a status in the kingdom. Figures out that he's actually one of God's people. Um, and he leads his people, Moses, out of slavery through some amazing, amazing things. 
uh, towards the promised land. Remember that story? Yeah. And then Moses, though, because he had sinned, um, died just before the promised land. He saw it but didn't enter it. Uh, Joshua, his, his assistant, took them in. Um, mighty leader, uh, great man of God, um, you know, fighting battles, making mistakes, but, but, but living truly for God. And we're going to read a little bit just to give you a bit of background. Joshua 24, just at the end of the book of Joshua. If you could just flick back a couple of pages before I read from um, 1 Samuel 8. Joshua 24, we're going to read. It's on page 240 in your church Bibles. We're going to read. There's quite a lot of reading today, but, but we'll, we'll move through it fairly quick. Joshua 24, verse 14. Joshua said to the people, having assembled them all in the promised land, Now fear the Lord, verse 14, and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers serve beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the land whose land you're now living. But as for me and my household, said Joshua, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers out of Egypt, I've just told you, from that land of slavery, I've just told you, and performed great signs before our eyes. He protected us our entire journey and among all the nations through which we travelled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord, because he is our God. Okay, then just, just skip forward slightly. Okay, verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is holy and he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. On that day, verse 25, Joshua made a covenant for the people that they were going to follow God. This is the background. God's people have said, yeah, we, we know this God, this God that has led us out and powerfully protected us and kept us. We know this God. We promise, we promise to serve him. Just move forward a couple of pages. Just Judges 2, literally one page turn. Verse 6 picks up at the end of that bit where he made a covenant. Judges 2, verse 6. After, Joshua, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, and none of the generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those raiders. 
Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from their way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's command. If you go back to 1 Samuel 8. I know that's a lot of reading, but we're looking at kind of story before I kind of go into the, the practical kind of challenge from the passage we're going to look at tonight. Can you imagine, imagine this scene? Just imagine this scene. So there's the promises that are made. People saying, yeah, we will follow the Lord. He's been good to us. He's kept us. He's, he's enabled us to take this land, this, this land that was promised years before. And yet the minute the first generation pass on, that promise starts to slip. I guess a simple challenge I could make here would be for you guys that have got Christian young people growing up in your homes, what a challenge there is to pass it on. What a challenge there is to pass it on faithfully. You know, I know growing up lots of people would do testimonies at camp and they'd be like, ah, oh, I, was, I wasn't a Christian, I did this, this and this, and then I became a Christian. And we'd be like, wow, that's amazing. I was thinking back, actually, I know more people now who became Christians, having not been, than who are my Christian friends growing up. I was counting it back. More of my Christian mates from church have lost their faith than I know people that came to it late. There's a real challenge, isn't there, to, to pass it on, to pass it on well. God's people here, they, they, they break the covenant. And, and this pattern starts to emerge. When they rebel against God, when they serve other gods, God uses the nations and the people around. Did you see it in 1 Samuel? And in Judges, rebels come and start to just, just beat people in battle. This nation that have, have literally walked across water, who have survived in the desert through miraculous food, being beaten by rebels because of their unfaithfulness. And this is a, a pattern that's going to kind of come up again and again and again. God raises judges to lead them, but it's just not enough. The people keep falling away. How did the people lose the promised land? I'll tell you straight away from the sort of person that likes a quick answer. They rejected God as their king. They said, we don't need him anymore. There are other gods around, other people we can serve. And we're going to look in our passage today about how that became very clear. So, 1 Samuel 8, this is our last bit of reading um, before um, we come to a close at the end. So, 1 Samuel 8, um, let's just read this together. 1 Samuel 8. It's on page 278 in your Bible. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. Samuel's a prophet, by the way. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war 
and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and your maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. What a gracious God. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone is to go back to his town. I'm blown away by that. I know it's, it's late on a Sunday evening and, and it may not hit you as hard as that. For two reasons. The Israelites had their past. They'd seen the glories of God displayed. And yes, it was a new generation, but they had to realise that the only reason they were in the land was because God had done something fairly miraculous to get there. More than that, when Samuel lists out for them what the future of having an earthly king in the way that the rest of the kingdoms had would look like, they still choose to go that way. I'm blown away by it. I think to myself, how stupid can you get? It's like swapping a Ferrari for a Dacia, a Romanian car held together with sellotape. It, it, it seems that daft. You have a God who has never, ever, ever failed them. Whose every promise has come true. Every word has been powerful. Every empire who stood before him fell. And you have this other king that will enslave you and take the best of what you have and give you a life that's a shadow of what you could be. And yet, here's the challenge. In my daily life, how often do I exchange God as my king for something else? Some other shallow imitation of what a king should be. How often do I put myself in charge when I know that all I end up doing is enslaving myself to sin, making mistake after mistake in the same way? How often do I do that? How often do I think to myself, well actually, if it's not me I put as king, it's something else. Money, wealth, power, status, fame, success, looking good to the church, looking good to the world. Making sure my marriage looks perfect from the outside. How many times do I put something else in the place of God as my king? And if I'm blunt with you, and I list it like it's listed here, with Samuel saying, this is what happens if you live with this earthly king, and this is the king you had before, I guess it becomes painfully obvious which king it makes sense to have as your king. Do you have a king who gives you freedom, or a king who leads to slavery? That's the challenge, isn't it? That's the bottom line. So why did the Israelites reject their king? 1 Samuel 8. In verse 4 and 5, you hear this pathetic thing. And yet, once again, I see it in myself. They say, can we have a king like everyone else, please? All the other nations have earthly kings. It's a bit embarrassing now going out to battle with our imaginary king at the front, considering he's not really winning much anymore. We want another king that we can see, an earthly king, that, that we can kind of make sure that the other nations can see too. Why did the Israelites reject their king? They wanted to follow the crowd. They wanted to look the same. They wanted to be the same. They didn't want to stand out. Imagine facing an army, though, where there's such a clear picture that they are led by something supernatural that they don't have a king leading them out to battle. Because God is their king. 
And he's there in all his power and glory, but they don't need someone else. And yet, once again, I challenge myself and say, how often, how often do I want to fit in with the rest of the world? How hard, I say, it is to live with God as my king, to look a little bit different, to stand out. How risky it must be if I fight a battle with God there, because after all, well, there might be some problems. If I choose to do my business different because I'm a Christian, but how easy it is to slip into the same habits as everyone else. It's it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Why did the Israelites reject their king? Well, the people wanted to follow the crowd. It says it there in verse 4 and 5. Give us a king to lead us just like everyone else. All the other nations have it. In verse 6 and 8. Give us a king to lead us, they say. And God says, listen to them. And they've listed this thing about how God's brought them out of Egypt, how he's rescued them from the past. But how quick we are, how quick we are to forget the past when today is full of trouble. Yes, God may have answered my prayers yesterday, but that's not enough now, God, because I have new prayers. I have new situations I'm facing. Yeah, okay, you, you drew close to me once in the past, but that's not enough because I feel far from you now. Come on, God, do something for me. But once again, how quick am I to see this in myself? This challenge of the reason I give up God is because, well, today's a different day to yesterday and I'm kind of struggling today. Think about the battles the Israelites have seen. Think about the powers their king has displayed for them. And yet here they are saying, well, we've lost us some rebels. Things are getting a bit tough. Can we have a king, please? Someone else instead of God. The people have forgotten the past, the glory of what it is to be God's people. The people ignore the future. There's that whole list of things in verse 19 to 18 where where Samuel says to them, guys, just just stop for a second. If you choose a non-God king, this is how it's going to end up. You'll be enslaved, you'll live a life that's, that's constricting and tight around you. How stupid are they to pick another king? And yet, once again, I see this in myself. I know that if I put someone else as God in my life, if I choose to give in to temptation or follow my own path, I know that does never lead to freedom. It never does. In the short term, I may feel free, I'm doing my own thing, but I always end up bound and and tightened. The people ignore the future. Why did the Israelites reject their king? Well, they didn't care about tomorrow. And guys, you know, I've been quite challenged because um, one of my friends saw a picture of me on Facebook um, and phoned up. And his first words were this. You've put on weight. That was his first words. At this point I said, who's this? Sorry. I just, I, I normally have prank phone calls. But his then words were, you look much older than I remember you. He's not the best of friends, to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I, I'm in the market for some new friends. But I did realise, looking back, because we've been cleaning out our house because we are, we're moving in uh, September 26th, which is very exciting. And I found some of my photos from the year before I started here. And I blame you totally for the weight and the ageing. Because in the photos of my gap here, I am slim and svelte. I am glowing with 18-year-old youth. Um, there's, there's just something about me. I, I find myself fairly attractive, to be honest. But, but it made me realise... That time is short, isn't it? Time is short. And not in a morbid way, but in a challenging kind of way. Because we often put off the future, but it's amazing how soon the future gets here. It's amazing how soon 
things change and situations change. And my challenge to you is that if you are the sort of person here tonight, he says, well, I'm going to do the God thing later. At the moment, life's quite cool. I'll sort it out when, you know, my bones start to creak a bit, you know. I've got the telltale signs that the end is on the way. I'll sort it out then. My challenge to you is that life is short. It's a gift, it's joyful, but it's short. The people here ignored their king because they didn't care about the future. But in the rebels, God was giving them a picture of something much more serious that was going to happen later. Because they kept choosing another king, because they kept going their own way and other gods, they end up in exile. Not just being attacked by rebels in different nations. Captured, not free anymore. And I love the fact that God gives his people freedom to choose. Have you seen that bit at the end? Samuel goes back and says, the people don't care what you said. At this point, I want God to go, right, that's it, unleash the Amorites along my people. Die before me, you, you stiff-necked evil nation. I've brought you so far and this is how you treat me. But he doesn't, does he? He says, give him a king. Give him a king. That's mind-blowing to me. God is that gracious when his people are so ungracious. And that's why I love God. Because I see in myself everything the Israelites do here. This inability to see the future, to not care about what God's done in my past, to put other things in the way that are a shadow and, and vain imitations of who it means to follow God. But I love, I love the fact that God could be gracious to me. If you can flick forward just in your Bibles, just as we come to a close, this is my application. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. So how did the people lose their promised land? Well, they started off by picking an earthly king. God is gracious. He says, okay, if that's what the people want, we'll give them some earthly kings. We're going to talk in the next couple of weeks about the sort of kings they picked. But I want to give you just a little sense of deja vu. A little sense of deja vu. Which is where you kind of feel something again. Because in Isaiah, there's some prophecy about this, this, this man called Jesus. God's son, uh, a sinner saviour. Creator, Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And it says that he'll be despised and rejected by men. Despised and rejected. Jesus said to Samuel, uh, God said to Samuel, sorry, it's not you they've rejected, it's me. And we see this again in Jesus, don't we? Matthew 27, verse 11, Jesus is on trial. And we're going to be fairly brief as we go through this. Jesus stood before the governor, this is page 998 in your Bible, Matthew 27. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Just, just look up at me a second. My, my challenge this evening is very, very blunt. Jesus said that he is the king of the Jews. The Messiah, God's chosen one. For you to think anything else pits your opinion of him against what he says about himself. He says, it is as you say, I am the king of the Jews. Not just a king like the past king, a new king. A king that's going to establish a kingdom forever. If Jesus is not your king here tonight, or if you're a Christian but you know in your life, at the moment, something else is your king. And just, I know I've been a bit woolly about this. A king tells you what to do. A king is where you, you give your value, valuable things to. A king is, is who you spend your time seeking to please. That's what a king is. Yeah? So just do a quick mental check. Is God my king or is something else? That, that's the easiest way to check it. A king is what reigns. It is, it, it, he, he 
it starts to show you how your life will look. You start to model yourself on your king. So my challenge is, if Jesus says he is the king of the Jews, he's also our king. He's the king of all time, the king of all history. History is his story. The Bible is all about him. Okay? If he is the king and he says he is the king, my challenge and question to you is, is he your king? Is he your king tonight? And don't say, yeah, it's okay, Paddy, I'm a Christian. Don't do that thing again. I, I pass. The Christian life is a daily walk. Okay? I can wake up tomorrow and rebel against the Queen if I wanted to. It would be quite easy. She wouldn't even care. She probably doesn't even know. Um, I could send her a, a strongly worded letter in a very British sense. I rebel against you, Queen. And she'd be like, oh, I have a telegram. Um, but this is much more important. If I wake up tomorrow and decide to rebel against my King, a King who is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, all-caring, who knows the numbers of hairs on your head, who had a plan for you from before you were born. If I choose to rebel against that king, I guess I could have a problem. You know, why do we reject Jesus? Why do we reject him as our king? You know, we forget his past. Matthew 27, 23. Pilate says, why should I crucify him? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all louder, crucify him. Why would you reject Jesus as your, your king? This Jesus, who is the only person in history who lived a perfect life. Do you know how hard that is? Especially because he didn't have it easy. People were out there to catch him and test him and tempt him. And yet he he walked this path of perfection. Don't abandon your king for something else which won't have that past record. I love football at the moment. Do you know why I love football at the moment? Because my team have a perfect record. We've not yet tasted the bitter pill of drawing against Burnley or, or losing 1-0 or something. That would be really bad. Like, we have a gloriously perfect record. I stand tall in my Chelsea shirt. I dress Zach in his Chelsea shirt and we stand there together saluting our team on telly, shouting out, Frank Lampard, we love you. And I realise I've put another king in the way of God. But! But! I love it because there's this perfect record. Don't underestimate how glorious it is that Jesus could live perfectly on your behalf. Because I know that I've made these mistakes over and over again. But I love the fact that my Saviour didn't just die for me, he lived for me. He lived in, in full humanity as a man who I would love to imitate. Not a weedy kind of a God. A God who was strong, who had, had the words to still a storm. I love the fact that my Jesus lived for me perfectly. I can't abandon this figure in history who stands alone above prophet or religious teacher. I can't ignore this man who is perfect, who even his person at his trial says, I don't know what crime he has committed. That is mind-blowing. Don't reject Jesus. Don't forget his past. The people did that in the Old Testament with God. They forgot his past. We follow the crowd, Matthew 27, 24. The crowd say, crucify, crucify, crucify. How cheap, how cheap to seek to put something else in the place of God's kingship in your life just to fit in with the crowd. In Romania, if we'd followed the crowd, we would have been hit by a train. I think that's a very good analogy of what it means to live life following the crowd. There is one other funny story, just really briefly as I come to a close. In Romania, um, one of the trains was late. And it was raining, and we were all stood at this, this lovely station, which was very grim, Okay. And in a very British way, we were looking up and down the line going, train's late again. And I got bored standing on the platform. So I decided to walk onto the platform where our train was going to come. It was exposed. 
So I get my rucksack on and I walk out. I'm British. I don't speak Romanian. I don't, don't know the timetable. And the group join me because they're sociable beings. And when we looked up and down the platform, we realised that every single Romanian that was trying to catch that train had also joined us on the platform in tipping down rain. Under the vain belief that somehow I knew the train was coming. Now that's mildly amusing. What was funnier is that I have a very evil sense of humour. And I, once I figured this out, I said, do you reckon if I went back to the other side, they would follow me as well? And we were like, oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. And I said, I'm going to do it. So, I walked across again. Stood on the platform for a couple of minutes. All the Romanians joined me on my side. Choosing to follow me instead of their own kind of eyes or ability to read the timetable. And it was bizarre, wasn't it? It was just totally bizarre. They, they would follow someone who they had no idea about. Don't follow the crowd. Because the crowd only sees tomorrow or today. Follow Jesus who can see all of time. Laid out before him. Who is, who is overall, who wins at the end of time. Follow Jesus. Don't follow the crowd. We ignore the future. This is a massively key bit. Matthew 27, 25. <coughs> Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility Jesus is going to die. Verse 25, and just read this solemnly as I did this week. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. That's what the crowd shouted about Jesus. Yeah, we'll take the blame. Let his blood be on us. It's our responsibility. Why would you reject Jesus when we know that, that, that our blood is what should have been spilled instead? But Jesus says, I'll make you clean. I'll forgive your sin, I'll take the place, I'll take your place. Don't reject Jesus, because if you do that, you ignore the future, that, that Jesus needs you to say to him, I trust you, I, I give you everything, I make you my king. And mind-blowingly, we saw that God was gracious before, Matthew 27, 50 to 53. Jesus dies. When Jesus cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The freedom that Jesus gives is freedom from death, freedom from sin, freedom from separation from God. We see that clearly there. The the curtain tears, the dead are raised to life. Why would you reject Jesus that can give you that? That, that's, that's, That's crazy, crazy. So here we go, to finish. And there's going to be a verse that comes up on the, 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 the screen behind me. Joshua said to his people, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I challenge you to do the same. To not serve the crowd's gods, not challenge some other pale imitation of it. Because as we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time, it led them down some dark paths. And yet, in God, we have so much freedom. You know, I, I love the fact that the promised land included this place, Jerusalem, the place where Jesus would be crucified. I love the fact that God had that in his plan, as he took his people on. Imagine allowing his people to take a land where he knew his son would be crucified in that city. That, that's pretty mind-blowing. And doing that on our behalf is more than I can do.